Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. More than a podcast. Now a conversation with a prolific actor of British sitcom. He's popped up in so many over so many years. Robert Gillespie's career spans the decades. He was in Porridge, Rising Damp, Robin's Nest, Dad's Army, to name but a few. He was also the lead in Thames TV's 80s hit... Keep It in the Family, and starred in big films and stage shows. He's also a writer and director. Now in his late 80s, Robert's full of anecdotes from a long career and has just published a new book. He sat down for a great chat with Ashley. Enjoy, this'll be a good one. He's worked with almost everybody. Absolute delight to talk to you, Robert. Now on Distinct Nostalgia, we go way, way back and interview all sorts of people. Uh, I think the furthest back we've been is we interviewed Margaret Barton from Brief Encounter, uh, which of course was made at the end of the war. And she's well into her 90s and has just got married and she was brilliant. She was waxing lyrical about working with the greats on Brief Encounter and all the rest of it. Now, you don't go quite far as back as, as that, but your career started in the 1950s though, didn't it? You could say that that's where it started, yes, 1951. I mean, I'd been acting before at school and then with an amateur dramatics society, a very big one, near where we live, just south of Manchester, uh, in Sale. Do you know the Altrincham Garrick Society? Have you ever I heard do. of them? I do, and the Garrick Theatre is still there, isn't it? It is still there. I think it's still operating. Well, I I was still at school when I performed on many occasions. In fact, um, Graham Armitage who um, was a very good actor and a very funny man. And he was here ahead of me. He joined the Altingham Garrick. And at one point, he played the front end of a pantomime horse and I played the rear end <laughs> for the Altingham Garrick. That was the real start. But then um, the advice was try and get into a rep. I had a sort of go at that. But then I, I tried to get in at RADA, and I got in at RADA. So in 1951, I went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and, and therefore moved to London. And that was the kickoff. But you were actually born in France, weren't you? Is that right? Uh, my father was a Canadian. And his work, which was, he was an accountant, it was always associated with agricultural machinery. It was called Massey Harris and then Massey Ferguson, was still around. And so um, because he spoke perfect French and German, as it happened, they were very happy for him to be based in Lille, in uh, where there, are a lot of, there were a lot of factories, including uh, those making uh, agricultural machinery. So um, he happened to be there. And at one point he took a trip to Hungary, where he met my mother <laughs> and brought her back to Lille in France. And then I was born there. And I, if it hadn't been for Adolf Hitler, I would be French because the first language I ever spoke was French and I went to school in France. But then um, my father, very, very late in the day, because he was a, a Canadian, as a Canadian, he would have, uh, he was a British subject and he would have then been interned for the duration of the war. So very, very last minute, decided we should get out and we caught the last passenger boat out of France, right down near the Spanish coast at Saint-Jean-de-Luz. Fabulous. So how did you end up in Manchester then? We landed in uh, in Plymouth and we stayed with a friend of the family on my father's side 
But again, the company went on employing him and he had to go where the industry was. So there was a very big factory making agricultural machinery in Trafford Park in Manchester. I, I didn't speak a word of English, by the way. All oh, right. <laughs> so I had to learn English. Uh, and then I, um, you know, I still had a quite a strong accent. From my primary school, I got into Sale Grammar School and that, that was it. And then, then I started acting there because an English teacher started doing plays there. Now, you got into RADA, didn't you? And you, you then ended up, you ended up at, the, at the old Vic. Uh, this was sort of the very early part of your career. And you were there with some fabulous names. Tell us a bit about your time there. RADA was a strange time. And I describe it in the first book I wrote. The further away you were from RADA, the higher its reputation. The I expected it to be a temple of art and it wasn't but there were some uh, useful things to be got out of it but because of my height I couldn't play straight leads or anything that was not allowed you had to be at least five feet nine at the time so that was not uh, permitted so I played all, all kinds of interesting character parts including very old men and so they didn't rate me finally and they thought I might stage manage or something like that. So the, a notice went up on the board saying that the Old Vic was holding auditions for its first ever uh, Shakespeare canon season. They were going to do the whole of Shakespeare in five years. So I just got myself an audition <laughs> and uh, did a couple of pieces near the end of my time there anyway. And I said, oh, by the way, I've got a job. I'm going to the Old Vic. And so um, I, I ended up with two years there. In fact, the first season was headed by Richard Burton, Claire Bloom, Faye Compton, Michael Horden. It was an extremely starry group of people with a great deal of clout. And working in those conditions was absolutely fascinating because it really dropped into the deep end. The actor that impressed me most um, in terms of uh, quality of performance and interpretation was Michael Horden. Do, do, do you remember him at all? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. He was a wonderful comic actor and he, he played a magnificent Malvolio and a Parolles in All's Well That Ends Well. It was a mixed experience because the boss wasn't entirely in control of everything. I don't know what you've ever heard about Richard Burton but he could be a handful. <laughs> so, again, I write about that quite a lot in the first book I wrote, which is the prequel to the one I've just written. Very, very much later in life, I was asked to go to the RSC. And the contrast between the atmosphere and the two companies, you could cut with a knife. I mean, um, the Ovic company was kind of okay, mildly troubled in some ways, uh, as a company, I mean. There was a lot of messing around and so on and so on, and a very mixed quality of work. The RSC was absolutely magnificent. It was actor paradise. So I didn't, I never expected to be in the classics again, but in the 90s, I ended up at the RSC after a very, very, very long time in situation comedy, of course. So that was that was fascinating. Of course. So going back going back to the old Vic, this was you sort of really starting out, weren't you? So what what, what were you sort of thrown in the deep end? Which, which were the parts that you 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 relished, and which were the parts that you hated? <laughs> At that time of the state of the acting profession, you did absolutely everything that you were told to do, and that meant 
uh, walking on in court seats, putting a line there, and uh, understudying everything in sight. So, um, in fact, curiously enough, because I was rated as a heavy, heavily a character actor, my best part in the first season was a very old man. And that was really, a, it was only a dozen lines. At the priest in Twelfth Night that marries Mala and Sebastian. And so, um, but, but you imagine that coming on, spending an hour on a makeup, look, 104 wasn't going to get you a huge amount of work afterwards. But that's what they want. And as I say, you, you had to understudy everything you, you, you are to. In the second season, curiously enough, same again. The best part was Adam in As You Like It, who, who is empty. And I'd be right for him now. But I was 20 then. So I played. So that was, a, it was a very, it's very, it's a fascinating time. Because actors now, people who study the theatre now, the theatre now, because of, they haven't lived through this. It's very, very difficult for them to imagine the conditions of the time. I mean, people, even in the West End, there were 20-year-olds coming on playing 70-year-old colonels. And uh, supposedly, uh, people paying to see this. I mean, you couldn't imagine it happening now. I mean, everybody would just laugh. I mean, why, why cast a 20-year-old boy to play a 70-year-old colonel and get money, get the audience to pay for it? But then... That was the, that was the deal, and so I'm afraid I never had it. And the other thing is, <laughs> the range of parts I played. Uh, I was actually Fritz and Macbeth, who is Mac Banquo's son, and he's 15. I played 15 to 80 while I was the old Vic, and I mean it was all extremely valuable experience. But you can't say you, I can't say it was a huge pleasure because I never got to explore what I could do as me, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, I understand that. I understand that. But but you I mean we'll talk in a minute about the range of characters you've played, but you 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 are you, you have I mean I don't think you've ever really been typecast, have you? You've been pretty versatile in your entire career, haven't you? I was saved from typecasting by situation comedy because after Rada, although I got all kinds of bits and pieces, some of them very, very interesting in schools, television, and all kinds of very, uh, an interesting range of parts. Commercially, I started being cast as a small time crook, because obviously, if you just looked at me at the time, I looked like a small time crook. That's what I fitted. I wasn't, I wasn't very tall, and I had n- not standard uh, handsome features, if you know what I mean, classical features. But David Croft came on the scene. I was sent along by my, I had an agent eventually. For nine years, I worked without an agent. And then um, after nine years, I got an agent. She sent me along to David Croft. And he was looking for somebody to play a desk sergeant. The reason I got there was because I was able to do, supposed to be able to do a French accent. And that started me off. And in situation comedy, I was extremely lucky because I avoided for 20, maybe 25 years, 
I avoided being typecast, which was a great relief to me, I have to say, because I dreaded it. A lot of actors, you see, sought to be typecast. They thought, if, if I can find a niche, you know, whatever it is, clerks or whatever it is, office workers, whatever, you know, bad boys, and I've got a career for life. I dreaded that. So situation comedy saved me from, from being typecast. And you and you played a lot of different characters in lots of different comedies. I mean, you were you know you you cropped up in so many of them. Let's talk a little bit about some of them. We'll obviously talk specifically about Keep It in the Family, which of course became your your big one um, in a moment. But you know you pro- you you cropped up in you know Porridge as a vicar. Um, you were in Rising Damp. Uh, you, you were in all sorts of things. Let's just focus in on 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 one of them. Let's focus in, if we can, on Rising Damp because Leonard Rossiter, of course, was a was a character, and they had a real great ensemble cast there of, of people who um, worked at Yorkshire Television. Um, what was it like on Rising Damp? Tell us what you remember about it. Apparently, Leonard had a a reputation for being difficult. I never found him difficult. I worked with him twice. It was an absolute joy to work with him because he was such a brilliant technician. And the fascinating thing on that episode was the coin gag, because it, if you if you watch that scene with the uh, all the coins cascading down his trouser legs at the end of the scene, I suspect that a lot of audience members would think, oh, well, that was easy. He just had a lot of coins in his hands and he burst through his pockets and it all worked. Well, Leonard had to work very, very hard all the recording day to get that organized so that it worked as brilliantly as that. And that's uh, because I'm fascinated by craftspeople like Leonard, who uh, went on and on and on. Because, I, I, In fact, it, it's true. People started to raise their eyebrows and roll their eyes because he kept asking for things on the day. He's absolutely right. And uh, I describe in in um, the book I've just written um, exactly how what he had to do that day to get the effect he wanted, or and obviously we wanted. But I didn't have to do anything except giving giving my, uh, his cues. He had to do the work with his coins. And the the thing is uh, really absolutely justified because we only did one take. And that's the kind of scene with quite a tricky um, uh, props effect that often you have to do several times to get bits of it right. Which he, because Leonard got at everybody and said, I need this, I want that, I want the pockets done this way, I want this in one pocket, I want the other in the other pocket. We did it at the uh, uh, final run, at the recording run, and it worked like a dream. <laughs> no retakes. So and that's my memory of Leonard. I met him socially as well a few times, but he, he, I, he, he wasn't cuddly, of course. I mean, he had a very sharp sense of humour, and he tended to comment on, you know, anything that was going, you know, theatrical, uh, politics, uh, national politics, and he was, <laughs> he, he was, he was, he was very sharp and throwaway stuff. Very clever, you know. Amazing how quickly he he spoke, didn't you find? I, I, I could never believe that anybody could speak that quickly and be intelligible. It's amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, a brilliant, brilliant actor. Obviously, very, very keen on getting it right. That I think that's what people mistook in a way. They thought he was, he was a bit sort of sharp and miserable and whatever. But really, he was a perfectionist, wasn't he? Really, more than anything. Exactly that. Exactly. I gather he didn't. I'm told he didn't particularly get on with Francis de la Tour because their politics was completely different. Apparently, <laughs> and I wasn't. I wasn't there long enough to know because I was only in one episode. You see. For years, year after year after year, I, d- I tended to t- turn up characteristically in one episode. I mean, in Likely Lads, I was in more. And there was a there was a series called Rosie where I would have gone on, but it clashed with uh, another show that somebody um, booked me for. But um, until Keep It in the Family, I just turned up for maybe one episode of a series. So I came in, obviously, on Rising Damp. And all I knew was the atmosphere of that day. Although I, I worked with Leonard again on Reggie Perrin. Yes. But he was, uh, I mean, absolutely, you're, you're absolutely right. He was a perfectionist. And he was the same on stage. I once saw him play an extraordinary character called the, the Fall and Rise of Arturo Uyi, which is by Bertolt Brecht. And it's really a take on Hitler. And I mean, it's, it's very close to a solo. And the, the, Variety he put into that. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of dialogue, and and the physical. He, I mean, he did falls, he did rolls, he did. I mean, it was astonishing. I mean, in a way, looking back, I could see why he he might have burnt burnt himself out because he died terribly early. Because I think he was he was like a he was like a power saw, you know, a sort of burning flame, an oxyacetylene flame. What did you play in Reginald Perrin then? Well, I was a weird character. I, I, it's, I can, I've seen it. I've seen the clip, but some time ago, I, I played some. I, 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 I have to acknowledge I can't remember exactly, but I know I turned up with, with, almost like with a civil service brief, and Reggie Leonard turned me round into the ethos of of the place he was running, this weird group, society. And I ended up, um, as it were, self-developing in a boxing ring by having a fight, a boxing match with myself. And <laughs> uh, my designer has found a clip of that, and I've seen it. I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what the character was. I'd have to look him up. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Yeah, so so, so um, Leonard Rossiter, as you say, fantastic um a person to play play alongside and of course then you also played alongside another great and that was of course um uh ronnie barker um and you played a vicar in porridge didn't you i did yes well uh, ronnie and i went back to schools television there was a wonderful guy called ronald Eyre who became extremely eminent as a director and writer and he did a lot of very, very significant school stuff, including some major classics. But he also did bits of Dickens for, for educational purposes. And that's where I met um, Ronnie, because uh, we were both in a Dickens, in, in an extract from a Dickens uh, book. And uh, what I always remember about Ronnie Barco, one, he was probably... Of, in his day, one of the finest character actors ever. He was also one of the nicest people ever. He was just naturally talented. 
but he never, never, never threw his weight around in every way, whatever, at any time. Ronald then, Ronald Ayer, wrote, wrote a play in which he cast Ronnie Barker as the lead, as a kind of ex-soldier, a sort of Sant Major character. And I was in that, in a small part. Ronnie was, again, magnificent. And that's where we shared experiences. We found that we both collected stamps, but I think he also collected matchboxes. <laughs> so he was an absolutely lovely man. If he had not gone into comedy, he would have been the equivalent of... Um, one of our great, great national characters, like Leo McKern, a great character actor. But, of course, somebody discovered that he was funny and could do comedy. But not only that, which is he kept amazingly secret. I didn't know this, but apparently he wrote quite a lot of the scripts. Yeah, he did for the two, for the, for the two Ronnies. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea that he wrote because he, he, he was very, very modest about that. He talked about other things. So he was an amazing man, I think. And, he, and his parts were very... The, the parts he played were... He, 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 some actors aren't very good at this. You know you know, you know it's them kind of thing. But the, the parts like uh, Arkwright on Open All Hours and, of course, Fletcher, which I think was his favourite one in, in, in Porridge, uh, were so different, weren't they? That you believe that those characters existed. They were, you know... I mean, again, in a way, a bit like... Um, um, you know, Leonard Roster, he was something of a perfectionist, wasn't he? The, the interesting thing about Rodney was that, uh, well, for I mean, he was, in the proper sense, a character actor, in that he became other people. He, he didn't expect to come on stage being himself, whatever that means. I mean, you know, somebody like Edward Fox doesn't expect to characterise, he, he expects to come on and be himself. And uh, Ronnie never expected to come on and be himself. He, so he would study, just like Leonard would, but in a very different way. He would think, you know, well, who is this guy? He's not me, but I need to use bits of me to get him right. So he, he was a true, true uh, character actor of the very, very best kind. I mean, one can imagine if he'd had a career, uh, a theatre career, a stage career, he'd have, he'd have ended up playing King Lear and Macbeth and all those things. He'd have been amazing. But, uh, you know, that's it. And the cookie crumbled the way it did. And he had a fantastic career. And, of course, uh, much loved and, you know, much missed, actually. Wonderful man, really. What do you remember about being on Porridge then? Because obviously you played this vicar character, and I think I think an episode in what nineteen seventy four, seventy five, I think it was. What, um, what? Yeah, just tell us a bit about a bit about a bit about Porridge, because obviously you would have you would have been working with Ronnie, but of course also with the sadly missed now um, Richard Beckinsale as well. That's right. The thing is, I don't know whether this is the case, but I think probably a lot of people who haven't been on a situation comedy recording set. Imagine that everybody's larking around, having fun, and so incidentally, you know, doing the scenes and chucking in the lines. It's not like that at all. When it's properly run, and in other words, when a show will work, it's like a factory floor. Everybody knows what their role is. Nobody gets in anybody else's way, and you certainly, certainly don't get in the way of the leading actors, because they carry the burden the entire burden of the show on that day and also its success out there with the audience. So, I mean, obviously Ronnie and I met briefly 
at rehearsal and acknowledged that we knew each other. How are you, Robert? How are you? you know? <laughs> That's it. There's no time. Because a situation comedy is classically rehearsed with a long morning and then you're given the afternoon to learn the lines. And, of course, if you're playing a lead, as I ha- did in, in, in Keeping the Family, you need that afternoon to learn all those lines and get them right for the day because you've only got a very uh, short amount of time to get it right. So, uh, you know, uh, hello, Ronnie. Hello, right, yeah, you were on, yes, yes. Pity about Ronald there. Yes, he's died. Sad, yes. And that's it. And then you just sit about, watch the other brilliant craftspeople <laughs> work and wait in your dressing room, wait till you're called, get in your costume, and then on cue you come and do it. And uh, again... It's a very tense atmosphere, not so much with the BBC, but it is with commercial television, because they desperate not to go over time and take retakes because of the fortune it cost them, because the crew, uh, camera crews were being heavily overpaid. Uh, it was it was quite a racket, and so the commercial people were in it to make money. Were terrified of going over time, so you you know. Uh, the BBC gave you two hours for a half hour recording, uh, which was reasonably generous, but it was still quite tight. And they would they would retake if if they absolutely had to. And of course, retakes were always done for the camera. If the camera made a mistake, that that always got retaken. But if the actors, if they thought they, they could work around it, they left them. So it was quite a, a hairy, tense atmosphere. Some people think think of it as 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 it were going over the top, you know. And our distinct nostalgia chat with prolific sitcom actor Robert Gillespie will continue in just a few minutes. As well as amazing interviews just like the one you're listening to now, the Distinct Nostalgia podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz. Oh, I've never heard of it. Where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo, is all I can remember that. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that. A brand new season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you. Prisoner Cell Block. Cell Block B. Prisoner Cell Block H. Simply pick your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com or by messaging us on Twitter. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh, whistle down the wind. Carry on up the Khyber. I'm, no, this is rubbish. I'm sorry. No, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> They're not bad attempts, actually. And the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz. Got there in the <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. They always are. (laughs) Suicide is sadly something which affects people from all backgrounds. I am a journalist and broadcaster and I'm 37 years old. I live in London with my husband. I'm originally from West Yorkshire. About five years ago, I had a single episode of psychosis which led to suicidal ideation. I'm Devon Rees and I've been an actor for over 10 years. And some of you might know me from playing your law on a Welsh soap called Publicom. And this 
is Life Matters. Brought to you by the Zero Suicide Alliance. We'll have our personal story from bisexual journalist Nikki Hodgson. I certainly felt like I can't live like this anymore. I don't think I was supported very well looking back. They didn't really look at the stress. They didn't really look at some things that were going on at home that weren't particularly great and my relationships with my parents at that time. Our aim with these shows is to discuss solutions and raise awareness of very important issues which touches many of us. This is Life Matters with Dove Ann Rees, radio presenter Daryl Morris and Professor Alice Roberts. Listen within your podcast provider by searching for Life Matters and visit zerosuicidealliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives. Do you want a cup of tea? I'll have half a cup. And that caught on. Yeah, that became a kind of catchphrase, I think. It was the hilarious film of 1999. It wasn't anything to do with race or religion or creed or colour. It was as simple as an art student who thinks he's all free and easy and thinking that that's going to be okay. East is East by Ayub Khan Din broke new ground by portraying a relationship between a British woman and her Asian husband. And as a new version of the story comes back to the stage in Birmingham, why not remind yourself of the movie classic with Distinct Nostalgia's special trilogy of star interviews? Oh, frig off and wash your bastard curtains, you dirty cow. And I swear to God, that's one of the best lines I've ever had to say in my life. But the film had a serious side too, tackling both racism and domestic violence. I threw myself and put all my physical strength into trying to stop him. And I couldn't. In Helsinki, they were saying, I can't believe you've made this film. It's incredible because it's showing what life is like for us now. A series of special interviews with Linda Bassett, Leslie Nickel and Chris Bisson. It was a great script and it was a timely thing to tell because it hadn't been told before. They've done all sorts of incredible things to transport you back in time, to give you an authentic feel of what it was like. This series of special interviews is available now at distinctnostalgia.com. You, you, you're in, as you say, you know, there's a list a mile long of comedies that you that you starred in. So you're having these sort of semi-regular moments in different comedies or you'd appear in different... People People who were watching sitcom in the 70s and 80s would see you crop, cropping up in different places. Were you hoping that that would eventually lead to something more permanent? I mean, because, you, you know, you obviously starred in quite a few of the... Thames ones that were, you know, involved Brian Cook as the as writer, etc., um, and, and Johnny Mortimer. You know, were you, were you hoping that something like uh, Keep It in the Family would emerge at some point? It's a hope that you don't rely on, because it's almost in in the vast majority of cases it will end in disappointment if you um, if you pin your hopes on being cast in the majors, whatever. Now, there are a few very ambitious and very, uh, uh, I don't know, socially active people who I've heard and I've come across the odd one, uh, but very few who really work it, you know, try and try and be at the right party, try and be in in the uh, canteen or at the bar when the right people are there. But it, it very rarely works. What works is gradually building up a reputation. And 
I had, by then I was being stopped um, for some many years because of the number of sitcoms I did and the appearances I made. I was constantly being stopped in the street by people recognizing me. And it, I didn't hope, but I just knew that I was having an effect and that when people hired me, and especially when they repeat hired me, uh, I realized they, th they thought I was doing something right. And that's as far as it went. And in fact, obviously, Brian, I did Robin's Nest, stuff like that. Um, I'm Robin's Nest more than once. And uh, it, it was just a day when Brian sort of came up to me and said, um, uh, have you ever thought, um, I mean, have you ever fancied uh, fronting your own show? I said, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> he said, well, I've got this idea. It's an idea uh, for uh, the characters, a kind of manic depressive. Anyway, I'll, uh, you, you, you'd be happy to have a look at this. I, I said, uh, feel free, Brian. Just do it, and I'm very happy to look at it. <laughs> you know, it's one of those very British downbeat things where you say, instead of saying, ah, it's happened at last, Jesus, Jesus, I'm, you know, I'm a Hollywood star. You just kind of say, yeah, Brian, okay, uh, let's... Uh, interesting to see the script <laughs> so um eventually he came round. he showed me a script and he said you know etc 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 and then of course he had to persuade the management to let me front it because i wasn't big enough uh in their eyes with the head of comedy to really be up there and in fact brian had to fight to have me in fact at one point they said can't we uh, it's very nice you know it's good but uh, can't we get somebody more famous <laughs> and uh, fortunately for me brian stuck his heels in and uh, i ended up with keeping the family which was which was brilliant and i remember it very very well as a little boy that the thing that struck me most about it really i don't i never remember that you were a a depressive for some reason. I do know now because I've watched them since. But the thing that that I know I remember most as a little boy was basically the fact that you were you were a stay at home artist, weren't you? Basically, you were an artist or a, a graphic designer or something, and and that stuck in my mind and and sort of got a little bit of an interest at one point in that area. My dad actually was an artist, so that's the that's the sort of arena that I remember of the. And obviously, I've now watched it since, and I know a little bit more about it, but. Um, Obviously, he told you what it was roughly about, but did you, you know, how did, tell us, how did, how did the character develop? People find this extremely difficult to believe or understand. But so I was cast as this character and I panicked because I thought, how do I play Dudley Rush? Is he this? Is he that? Is he, you know, what is he? Is he? And I went around and I started asking people. I said, uh, they said, you're fantastic. Well, well done. Congratulations. I said, yes, I'm. No, but how do I play Dudley Ross? And my partner Anna said, it's you. I said, what? It's you. You play him as you. Well, Ashley, I had never played myself in my entire professional career. I didn't know what it was like to be me on stage. Even at RADA, I only got one juvenile to play in the entire two years there. I didn't know what I was. <laughs> and uh, I went to Brian, he said, it's you. I didn't think I was a manic depressive, but he, he picked up this up and down thing that I, I, I acknowledge that I do have. You know, I can be sort of a little bit ecstatic and then a bit down and glum. And that's what he described. 
<laughs> manic depressive. But he said, it's you, it's you, Robert, it's you. And it took some getting used to. And when I was rehearsing the first episode, it was strangely creaky for a while. And then it was getting in front of an audience. After about 10 minutes in the first episode, because I was used to responding to an audience and getting laughs wherever they were, if possible, I suddenly warmed to it. And I thought, oh, yes, I see. It's just me camping about, you know, it's me locking about as me. And so it was a weird, weird, weird experience. And of course, he was a creative character and you're a creative person. So I suppose that was also part of it, wasn't it, really? Because you could, you could, in that sense, play you know, and explore yourself within that character a little bit. Yeah, the, the thing is, it, I don't know how many people know this, but Brian Cook was uh, himself a cartoonist first. So it was based, uh, yeah. Barney the, the cartoon Barney the Bionic Bulldog was based on the kind of thing that <laughs> poor Brian had to draw himself or enjoyed drawing, I don't know. But so, so it was, exactly, it was a creative person. And uh, he was obviously tapping in on something that I think he was, probably experienced himself as well, which is if you live in a house where dad works at home, writing, you know, in this case, drawing cartoons, and so that the family's constantly on, everybody's on top of everybody else all the time. So I think that was, uh, that was very heartfelt. I think it was deep, deeply part of his own experience. So uh, he used a lot of what he was, cartoonist, working at home, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, it wasn't just you know in the other in the other one other sitcoms you you bobbed in and out and done different characters and obviously you had to know who was who and whatever. But in this instance, you had a whole family that was around you. So you had you had a wife and you had kids and all the rest of it. Tell us a bit about the people you were working with. Had you worked with any of them before? No, I hadn't. No, uh, the really I mean you know the thing I really enjoyed was that Brian had written about a couple, a married couple, that actually liked each other and got on well and had a really rather nice time in bed. Because uh, if you think of George and Mildred, you know, I, I'm extremely pleased I never had to do that. I absolutely love the fact, that because very often Brian would start any episode with uh, my, Pauline and myself in bed. And so we had, uh, I mean, they weren't really risque jokes, but for the time, they were just a little bit edgy about what might and might not happen or what might or might not be going to happen. But um, but I, that was delightful. And she was, I mean, Pauline was just a total joy to work with, just no hassle. And, and, and frankly, I think if you ask most actors, that's what they want. They don't want aggro at rehearsal. They don't want tension. They don't want... And it's the same with status. Again, the other two girls, my daughters, they were both from theatre families. And so Stacey Dorning's dad was an actor. And, uh, of course, Jenny Quayle was the daughter of an extremely famous figure in the theatre, Anthony Quayle. So it it was kind of very, very... Warm. It was very warm, very easy, and, and relaxed from the beginning. In other words, we could get on with the text. We could get on with getting, making it funny. And we had, we had for the first four series, an extremely fine director, Stuart, uh, Stuart, uh, uh, Mark Stewart. He was absolutely superb. I mean, he, he was very understated. 
never never went on and on. He just he knew what he was doing. He knew how to shoot it. It was brilliant. So it was a very good team for the first four series. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying, right? oh, yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying, oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. 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 Hey, yeah. You feel me? We gonna have this like, bro. Me and my man, like me and my man Kai, we be like, I don't know. We play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta lie. Play don't it, play with it. No. Take that shit serious. Yeah, and it was. I mean, I mean, obviously, we back in those days, people forget this, but. Every other night on ITV, about around about eight o'clock or eight thirty, there would be a sitcom. I mean, sitcoms were everywhere back then, um, and you were competing with lots of other sitcoms. But it wasn't the the era of the sitcom, wasn't it? How did it how how did it do at the beginning? It was respectable from the beginning. I mean, it was it was on the whole quite well reviewed, and uh, I mean, we 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 um, oscillated in the in the ratings. Between usually between three and five for quite a while. At one very brief moment, I think it hit number one. But um, of course, I mean, yeah, uh, you 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 might be interested in this. Your audience might be interested in this. Uh, sitcom actors, especially, are entirely dependent on the quality of the scripts, and the first two series. Brian wrote himself, and they were the best. There were some really good ones. He had he had input into the third series and oversight into all the f- f- first four series. But more and more, he began to go away because he was extremely successful. He was in demand anywhere, everywhere, and he ma- he was making huge amounts of money. In fact, his uh, accountant advised him to go abroad for a year and spend his money. Because it was getting embarrassing, so <laughs> so he didn't. Uh, I I kind of sent up a quiet prayer that Brian would just go on writing the scripts for us because they were just the best when he wrote them. And so, uh, if you see a decline in a sitcom, it's almost always able to be put down to the fact that there are guest writers coming in and they haven't quite got the feel. And they, I mean, what some writers started being really kind of very superficial and silly about youth and things like that. That wasn't right for us, but we had to do it. Uh, and so we, it made us sillier on the screen than we actually were as a group of people, as a family. So it's, uh, uh, that gives you some idea of what it's like in the engine room in sitcom. You're ter- tremendously dependent on other people. I think the thing I liked most about sitcom then, but especially Brian's sitcoms, you know, George and Mildred and Robin's Nest and uh, and, and, and Keeping the Family and, and various others, was there was a, um, I don't know, there was a warmth about them. Um, you know, not every single sitcom, not sitcoms don't have to be completely laugh a minute. They, you have to understand the characters, you have to believe in the characters, and and sort of care about the characters, and I think 
what they were great at doing was creating characters that you genuinely cared about and look forward to finding out what they were going to be up to this week. Do you know what I mean? I find that nowadays, it's not the same with everyone, but sitcom in certain areas has become very surreal and a bit remote. And I think there was a there's a, there's a warmth about all of those sitcoms, wasn't there? Shall I tell you what the reason is for the change, I think? It's because a great many of the uh, latter scripts last 20 years have, have come from universities. They're people who are bred, who think they're um, absolute uh, experts on, on uh, the goons. And they think that they can write like the goons and do all kinds of smart, slightly surreal, bizarre stuff or quick fire stuff. Uh, and sometimes they pick up from Hollywood. And uh, it's, ma- it's made it rather cold and mechanical. Uh, and it may be a fashion because the things I remember, you know, Steptoe was incredibly moving a lot of the time, wasn't it? It was. Were you, were you in Steptoe? I was never in Steptoe, but oh, I knew yeah. I knew Harry. I, I mean, I knew him slightly personally. Uh, he was a wonderful actor, but also the the the, uh, the scriptwriters were allowed to have, as exactly as you described, passages in which there was just a relationship, and because the the enjoyability was based on the fact that I had a granddad like that, or I had a dad like I've got a son that keeps bugging me like this man, until death do us part again, till death us do part. Uh, wonderful character in depth. So that you you really knew what that household was like. So there were a lot, there were laughs, you know, there were jokes. But what you turned on to watch was that group of people, believably interacting with each other. You really believed that you could walk into a home somewhere and find those people. And that's I think what's gone. And it it it, it comes from. It may come from audience research, but I think it comes from the people available who are flashing themselves. Um, I mean, there's a, uh, there are some individuals who are writing very smart about uh, uh, sort of stuff about bro- breaking relationships uh, and, and very frank stuff about their sex lives and things, things like that, which I think are... I'm, I'm pleased they're there because I think it ne- it's an area that needed exploring, but it's also a bit of... We're going through a bit of a fashion of that. What I think is that there's a lack of um, true, real, observational comedy. I mean, there's a lot... I mean, there's a lot of frustrations in the world today, you know, anything from dealing with technology or, you know, the administration that goes in ju- into just getting a doctor's appointment. All sorts of things are, are quite funny today, but... Actually, we, we seem to have lost the ability to to laugh at anything, which I find, whereas all of these sitcoms were observational, weren't they? Entirely. But I think, I mean, you know, there's a book to be written on this, or there's a, a PhD <laughs> to be done. There's a PhD to be done on this, because you need to go, one, into the kind of people that are actually running television now, 
and directing television. That's one thing. And then you need to find out where the writers come from. And you, it, it, you, you don't have so many ordinary working class writers, people with ordinary educations who just had a knack for writing. I mean, it's, it's amazing how many come from universities. And I think their experience in terms of exactly the thing you're talking about is very narrow. I mean, it's, you know, getting on on a university campus, uh, surviving for three years. I mean, my daughter went to Edinburgh University and I got, a, you know, washback from that. You know, it's, it's, it's quite a survival thing, uh, uh, you know, trick to do that. And, uh, uh you know, you have to work for the kind of relation, relational downtime that you need, and it, I, I think it could, I think it could come come back. Although, of course, we're living in very, very anxious times. But I mean, you can make a joke of that. Of course, you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. In a moment, we'll talk a bit about a writer specifically who I think was extremely observational, uh, and you did some uh, work for uh, some of her comedies. We'll we'll talk about her in a moment, but. Just let's focus a little bit on the Brian Cook things that you were in, other than uh, keep it in the family. You were obviously in George, you were in George and Mildred, and therefore worked with Brian Murphy, who's still around and still doing great stuff. But you also, of course, worked there. You would have worked there with Youth of Joyce, who I always feel is somebody who's been dreadfully forgotten because, and she was a huge star, wasn't she, up to her death in 1980? I, I've written about Youth somewhere because I was a I, I think I did a couple of George Mildreds, and she was amazingly open. I was just sitting by her at one point in a, a little bit of downtime, and uh, and she'd just been oh yes she did she did a little bit of a scene, fluffed and went back again, and she flashed a look at me and said another retake, and the anxiety that she conveyed was actually. I, I felt so sorry for her because I knew exactly what she was going through. She was a co-star and she was going on at the, uh, to record every show absolutely terrified. And so she was, and I think she was beginning to drink too much. And so I, 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 I had at one point I had quite a little bit of a talk to her and um, she, she was, she just, you know, did, just revealed herself. She she was very frightened, and she she just kept feeling that every single recording was a test of not only you know her professional pers persona, but uh, herself as a person in some. So I mean, I think that kind of thing burns you up, you know. Well, and also you've got to remember at the time that they were absolutely massive stars, weren't they? They were. They were. And the thing about Brian, because I worked with Brian, uh, we both worked for Joe Littlewood's Theatre Workshop. That's where I first knew him, when he was a very, very young man. And, uh, and Brian kind of never changes. And he's one of the most relaxed, easygoing people. And so he's perfect to, to overcome uh, the, the kind of tensions and nerves of, of doing a, a sitcom recording. But... Uh, absolute opposite to poor Utha. So Brian was always a great survivor. So there was a bit of him that sort of shrugged off uh, troubles or problems and said, well, we'll get it right next time, you know. <laughs> it, seemed, it seems like the stress of success got to Utha, didn't it, basically? 
Oh, hugely, hugely. And, and of course, she's not the she's not the only one. I mean, it, it just gets people, different people, different ways. I mean, she was a completely different kind of person and it just got to her horribly. Now, you were also in, of course, uh, well, George and Mildred, of course, and um, the Robin's Nest were spin-offs from Man About the House, which had been very successful in the early 70s. So you're in, you're in Robin's Nest with Richard O'Sullivan and, of course, with uh, Tony Britton, another great. Um, what, what do you remember about that? <laughs> uh, one of the things was, of course, because of David Croft and Hugh and I spy and this Moroccan uh, French desk sergeant, I kept being cast as a policeman behind desks, dealing with idiots. And it was a lovely thing to play. And people started writing this into their own scripts. So I did this character in several different series. Uh, and of course, working with um, Tony Britton was an utter pleasure. But one of the most memorable things was that at one point, which I write about, by the way, in the current book, I write in detail because uh, there was an um, identity parade. Uh, and I was obviously, as a, as a policeman, sort of officiating. And uh, Tony, uh, somebody had come into a restaurant and made an order for a meal and said it in a particular way. And Tony was going up this line of people, one of whom was a suspect, and they were all asked to order this meal. Uh, you know, something and something and courgettes, you know. And uh, Tony would go up and listen to first, first guy, second guy, third guy. Go to the fourth guy, he just collapsed with laughter. So I had to start again. And this went on throughout rehearsals. All day we were in the studio rehearsing. Whenever we did that scene, there came a point about the third or fourth person in the line saying this silly line, giving a, a, a meal order. <laughs> and Tony would dissolve into laughter. And we all looked at thought, well, you know, He's a very, I, I first saw Tony in Manchester when I was 15 and he must have been 25 with the Noel Alif company at the Library Theatre. So I thought this is a very experienced professional. Surely on the recording, he's not going to collapse in luck. He did. On the recording. <laughs> he, and of course, as you may know in sitcom, you never get the same laugh twice. Yeah. And yeah. so he just didn't get to the payoff. And instead he, I, so he must've been in one way terribly relaxed because Yutha would have been so tense. She couldn't have laughed, <laughs> but Tony was Tony. And so he went along this line and burst into laughs at the recording. Well, of course the audience loved it, but it meant that we missed the original laugh. Finally, on a retake, he managed to get through it. <laughs> so that's my story about Tony. Of course, yeah. we accept that, of course, we met again at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yes. We were in the same company. Uh, I, I, I joined them in 1994, and he was in the company as one of the leads. So there we were again, and we were together on stage in Twelfth Night. Our distinct nostalgia chat with Robert Gillespie will continue in just a few minutes.
If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a Blue Peter fan, you'll enjoy something special we've got coming soon. Tim Vincent is going in search of Valerie Singleton, and he'll be meeting one or two others along the way. Hi, Peter. It's Tim Vincent. How are you? Oh, hi, Tim. How are you? Nice to hear from you. I'm not too bad. i tell you why I'm ringing up. I'm trying to get hold of Valerie's number, by any chance. What, Singleton? Yes. Hmm. I'm not sure I've got it now. I've got an address somewhere. Well, I'm tempted to ask, why do you want Val's phone number, Tim? I'll only pass it on to you if you divulge why you want it. (laughs) Tim Vincent, as I breathe. What are you calling me for? What do you want? Hello? Tim? Tim? Tim Vincent. Tim Vincent. Oh, God. It's Tim. Just says about 20 minutes or something. No, no, that's Tim Vincent from Blue Peter. Listen out for In Search of Valerie Singleton with Tim Vincent very soon on Distinct Nostalgia. Now, somebody I mentioned before about um, about good uh, observational comedy. And there is one programme that's on at the moment. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a thing called uh, Two Doors Down that comes from Scotland. And it's with, uh, an, with Elaine C. Smith and Alex Norton. Uh, if you get a chance to see it, it's on its fourth series coming up, but they don't. The BBC doesn't promote it particularly well, but it's very, very good observation. If you get a chance to watch that, I def- I definitely recommend that. It's one of the f- one of the few gems I think is out there. But somebody from the past who was very good at observation, of course, was Carla Lane, wasn't she? You know, so she you, yeah. and you were in, of course, Butterflies and the Liver Birds. I don't know if you were any any other ones of hers, but yeah, just reflect a bit on her writing. She was pretty sharp, wasn't she? She she was uh, yeah absolutely I mean she was not only sharp but she was uh, 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 pleasantly glamorous as well and she drove this extremely fast showy little red sports car up and down from Liverpool so she was she was it at the time fantastic independent sort of woman you know and and, and had a wonderful. Uh, Scouse downbeat sense of humour, you know. In a way, she in a way she was sort of ahead of her time, wasn't she? Because she was pushing against the the blokes at a time when the blokes dominated. Absolutely right. And so, yeah, she was a great pleasure to. to I mean, I did quite a lot of stuff with her, and uh, I was in an entire series which was written by Carla. That was the BBC. It was uh, I think we did six episodes. It was called I Woke Up One Morning, and it's about four drunks. Uh, I, I played one of the, I played a character called Zero, who was an alcoholic. Uh, it was about these four guys. One of them was posh and had proper bank account and a credit card. Uh, there was an Irishman. There was Michelangelis, as a kind of uh, mixed race, you know, near Eastern. And uh, we all, we all met at this rehab facility. 
and had various kinds of adventures. And we all had, we either had wives or girlfriends or, you know, hankered after having girlfriends, etc., etc. So it was, in a way, it was, uh, it was Carla taking up a subject that she really, really, really wanted to see if she could foist in a way, I mean, get away with in front of a, a mass audience. She would be writing about something extremely serious, like alcoholism, which is particularly uh, disastrous in this country, and and say something very serious about that, but at the same time keep people laughing. It was one of the few times in her career, I think, that she didn't quite hit the button. It was close, but it got mixed reviews. I mean, I've got all the episodes, and I'm going to bring out a, a, a new website shortly, and we'll probably feature some of it on there. But the thing is, it got mixed reviews because I think people felt that it wasn't one thing or the other. It wasn't quite funny enough, and it wasn't, you know, properly tragic, although the, the, the subject was tragic. And so, uh, but it was very interesting. I, did, I was, you know, we went on location. We went to Wales on location and all kinds of places. It was a, quite a big deal and some uh, amazing people in it. But... Um, that it that didn't quite work. So that was an interesting insight. But then she did Bread, of course, which is a huge success, wasn't it? Yeah, and no, absolutely, she did Bread. She also did a th- another thing with Michael Angelis called um, Oh God, I can't remember what it was called. Now it's in the nineties, and it was it was called Love. That was it, Love, and it was with um, Sue Johnson and Michael Angelis, and it was about it's just a couple who had a, a a kid who was who would come out as gay, and they were dealing with that, and because it was an issue at the time. And they were also dealing with uh, another kid who had become sort of a, a rabid environmentalist. So it was all, bef- you know, before its time in that sense. But yeah, she was she was always good, wasn't she, at pushing pushing the boundaries? Basically, that's what Very she was nice all about. And much missed. I mean, my, my my partner went to interview her and has great stories of all the animals. Of course, that she had. She was into animals, wasn't she? In big in a big way. Yes, you are. <laughs> so it's brilliant. So yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. So um, yeah, so you, you did all these comedies, which is which is brilliant but what people probably forget is that you also did quite a lot of drama and of course you have to be a very good dramatic actor to be very good at comedy as well don't you so you were you were in the saint and the sweeney and all sorts of things like that tell us a bit about your the other side as it were the thing is in terms of major tv all that was very early and I, I don't remember it distinctly. People show me clips and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I see. Yeah, I, I was there. I, was, I did that. But to be quite direct, none of, there was only one major, major TV show, aside from comedy, that you would class. It was at the level of, play, I think it may have been a play for today. It was in the play for today's slot. And that was a, a play called Mary's Wife, in which I played a transvestite. And I uh, was the lead. Uh, this was a guy who gradually began to think he he had a he had a, a a wife and a son, and the tension between them, you know, you can imagine. And uh, there's a there is a society called the Beaumont Society, uh, where you, which you can join if you uh, enjoy cross dressing. Uh, no, hardly any of them are gay. They're people who, who really need to cross-dress. Some of them only maybe a couple of times a year. Yeah. Uh, some of them uh, once a week, you know. Most people who are trans transvestites, as in, as in, as you say, cross-dressers, are actually straight men. Exactly that. 
Yeah. So this, yeah. this, uh, so we went to the Beaumont Society to, for the research and everything, and that, <clears throat> and I walked down Bond Street as a woman, in the pre-title, and um, so that was that was really interesting. I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, again, I write about that at some length in in the in the book one, part one of, of this life of mine, and um, that was really interesting. But apart from that. I I never got on TV aside from comedy uh, in things which made a, a, much of a mark. Uh, I, so I ne- I never cost, uh, got cast as major leading things in anything apart from that one time as this transvestite. Not that I can remember. I played leads in schools and all that kind of thing, but the the general public would never have seen that. Talking about the transvestite thing, it's slight, slightly different, of course, because he wasn't playing a transvestite, but you did direct, didn't you, in theatre, John Hurt, who, of course, memorably played Quentin Crisp, didn't he, back in, right. back in the day. Did you ever discuss with him you, the, the two roles that you'd, you'd played and he played? Never, no. The thing was, uh, I, I was doing a huge amount of work at the King's Head Theatre there. I did 17 shows there, directed 17 shows, and I was bringing plays in uh, because... You know, the new plays, I mean, new writing. But um, one of the things about Dan Crawford, he's extremely bumpy to work with, which I write about, uh, I think in both books, but certainly in the second book. <laughs> but one of the things was he had enormous cheek. So he, he would, I mean, at one point he said, um, one of his favourite writers was Noel Card. And he said... Um, if I could get Paul Schofield to be in it, would you direct the Vortex? <laughs> and he actually got on the phone to Paul Schofield's agent and asked. Him, and they were all very polite. They didn't treat it as a joke. And so we waited three days and then the message came back. I'm afraid Paul Schofield is delighted that you asked him, but he has other commitments at the moment. So he didn't say F off which, you know, is probably what he was thinking. But um, for Cossack, it was the third uh, Tom Gallagher play that I did, uh, directed. And again, Dan said, I'm going to try and get John Hurt for this part. Feel free, I said. And uh, John came, read it and said, yeah, I'll do it. And one of the main things he said to me, Robert, I keep, I keep being discovered and then dropped. He said, people are angling again. I hope I don't get dropped again. And of course he didn't. <laughs> but um, he, he, it was a very strange beginning for John because he had, a, he had a, a, a very personal kind of dry character. He came over as quite terse and dry and, and sort of unsmiling, you know, and it was extremely valuable in all kinds of parts. But uh, it was quite difficult, I think, to place him at first. But I mean, I, I'll never forget him saying he hoped not to be discovered yet again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. Just going briefly back to, I'm going to want to talk a little bit about film in a moment, but going back to the sitcoms again, one we, I mean, you're in loads of them, I know, but one that was quite memorable. And of course, is st- the TV, st- the show is still very popular today and pulls in big audiences even now, 40, 50 years later. And and you were, you were in, you were of course in Dad's Army, weren't you, playing a, Playing somebody who was playing Napoleon or something. Well, the thing is that uh, David Croft be- began to, he never cast me as a main character in anything, but every now and again, <laughs> I'd get a call and say, uh, we don't quite know how to approach this 
part, or it's a bit tricky to get this right. And so I found like uh, there's a weird in eight half mount mum I come on as a weird captain <laughs> with a a weird kind of se- semi posh, semi working class accent, which again was just to liven up a, a, an otherwise you know it was an okay script, but it just helped to liven it up. And that's what he he tended to hire me when he did uh, for things like that. So he I got this call. He said <clears throat> we need somebody to play Charles Boyer in the famous movie, playing Napoleon. And he, uh, again, I had to, because he knew I, I couldn't, I originally uh, worked for him because I, had a, I could, I could uh, u- do a French accent. So he u- used me again. So I was meant to be Charles Boyer, who was an international French movie star, stage star, uh, in, the, in the film he made. Uh, as playing Napoleon. And the point was, the reason, the only reason was because Hollywood, they would have had to mortgage the BBC to get the clip from Hollywood. They were charging so much. They, they couldn't, the BBC couldn't afford the clip. <laughs> <laughs> so they stuck a little uh, set in a studio somewhere, got me along, dressed me up. And so I had this double thing of being a French actor pretending to be Napoleon. And I suppose in certain lights, I could look, you know, vaguely like Napoleon's cousin or brother or something. You know? <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And of course, you were also in Terry and June with Terry Scott and June Whitfield as well, weren't you? You, you played with them as well. Um, yes. Yeah, who were also great actors. I mean, June was, June went on for many, many years. And she, she goes, she went back a long, long way, didn't she, June Whitfield? June is a phenomenon. I mean, she, she is, First of all, she, again, she's one of these absolutely brilliant at what she does and an extraordinary range and also an incredibly nice person. She and Ronnie Barker, as it were, you know, just ab- extremely talented, extremely lovely people, you know. And so, you know, whenever <laughs> I was in anything where, where she was around, it was just lovely. I mean, it's just lovely to watch her work. Love she was so patient and she was so easygoing, you know. Of course, Terry was a was a bundle of nerves and behaviour. <laughs> I mean, he was very clever. I mean, you know, in, in his, in, they took Hugh and I uh, abroad in the series that I was part of, and uh, Terry was brilliant at certain kinds of low comedy miming and stuff, and making weird sort of foreign, trying to speak in a foreign language. So I admired him for for that kind of excessive talent. He was very good. But uh, no, always lovely to be with uh, June. Now, you you know, we talk about your acting and obviously that some memorable parts in, in, in sitcom and, and keeping it in the family and all the rest of it. And, and, and we talked a bit about some of your serious acting. Uh, but, you know, you're also, a, you're also a director and a writer. I mean, you, you, you've done tons and tons and tons of stuff and are still doing things. Um, but you were... You've been in quite a number of films, haven't you? And, and most recently, you were in the film which Mike Lee, Mike Lee's project, of course, which was about the the events in Manchester in Peterloo, which I watched uh, recently. In fact, I did a documentary on Peterloo for for, for Radio Four, um, a bit of history that people had completely forgotten about. Um, yeah, so I mean, obviously, you could talk about that if you want to. But how have you how have you found how did you find doing film compared to Italian theatre? 
deep down, you're just, I mean, if you're an actor like me, you're just being somebody. You look at the thing, oh, who is this guy? I'm going to be him. Obviously, if you're in a, a movie, you very, very, very quickly learn not to wave your arms about, not to over-project, uh, blah, blah, blah. Some actors have a little trouble adjusting to that. Uh, but that once you get used to it, you just know, and somebody will very quickly tell you, sorry, Rob, if, if say, you've been working on stage for a bit, and you come onto a, a film set and you say, pass me the marmalade, would you? You know, you say, Robert, can you just turn it down a bit? <laughs> and so... Um, so you get it's very you get very used to that. I love film. I would you know it would have been great to do lots and lots and lots of more film. I think if I'd been a French actor, I'd have probably I might have been a French star because I'm a I'm French height, you see, and uh, I can I, I think I could look a bit French, but it wasn't it wasn't to be here. So I I I was in quite a lot of movies, but essentially quite small. Uh, you know, supporting parts. And uh, I, I love doing them. I, I mean, I, I, I love filming. Um, and television is somewhere in between. You have to project a little bit in television uh, because uh, <clears throat> studio, you know, I mean, the mic can't be as quite as intimate as it can in a movie. But um, it's, it's, it's shading and grading rather than being entirely different. Because, uh, of course, I mean, obviously, uh, in the old days, when there were still actors using the grand manner, then, of course, they wouldn't fit in film very well at all. But it's interesting that Donald Wolfitt, who was the last of the great uh, old-fashioned actor managers, made quite a hit in films. He was in Room at the Top, and he was very good. So you can see that even an actor who's being able to be fill an enormous-sized theatre with his personality... He could always get it right if if he was good enough for for a movie. So I thought that was it's an interesting study. It's it's part of craft again. Absolutely. Now you're still doing things. You're I I don't you know I don't think where people can look this up. But I think you're are you 88 now, Robert? Is that right? Am I right? Uh, I'm going to be 88 in November. Yeah, and you're still doing things. You're still busy. You've just written this book. Just we we mentioned your book several times. In the interview, we've not said what it's called. So tell us what it's called. It's called, Are You Going to Do That Little Jump? The Adventure Continues. Fabulous. Yeah, because you did. You had, You had. brought it out in 2017 originally, didn't you, if I remember rightly? Just with the first part, Are You Going to Do That Little Jump? Which is a quote from a play by Terence Rattigan. Fabulous. And this covers, presumably, the whole book covers the entirety of your career that you can that you can draw from your memory, I presume. And, 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 and obviously you mentioned, you've alluded some of the, to some of the anecdotes in this interview, but sure, I'm sure there's plenty more in there. I hope so, because otherwise... <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's actually... One of the reasons it took some time to do this, the second book was because we kept wanting to get more and more into it. And my designer, Paul Warrington, has been absolutely magnificent in fitting all kinds of very varied material into this, into this book. Uh, so that the, the, the text is, is pretty terse and, you know, uh, doesn't wander and it, it isn't fat. But uh, there is a huge amount of content including an enormous number of illustrations, 
many of them coloured. And so it's, um, and of course, uh, you know, it, 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 it has a huge amount more that I couldn't get into the first book, obviously. Of course. Because, of course. because the yeah. first book, I, I actually started with my being born, <laughs> born and, and, and coming over from France and all that sort of stuff, which isn't to do with the theatre directly. But uh, this is all about my life in, 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 in the trade. And so it's um, uh, with every aspect of it, you know, writing, directing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and also running your own production company as well. I mean, you've done it all, haven't you, really? Well, yes. Yeah, so the, the thing is that um, once, uh, well, you know, there is a story of uh, you get left behind after a while. Yeah. Uh, for one reason or another, fashions change and... Uh, uh, also, think uh, opportunities come up which are different, and so I. You have to keep uh, reinventing yourself, don't you? Well, yeah, but also you. It's, it's also a question of interests. I mean, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the things that I thought society, and I, it's been acknowledged very recently in BBC programmes, that people uh, looking at death. Uh, it was it was as if. Uh, I mean, in America, I work quite a bit in America. And in America, they think death is just on hold. They're going to solve it quite soon. They're already looking at living for 150 years, and sooner or later, later it'll be open-ended. So that's that fantasy, you see. And here it's not quite like that, but it was ignored and not looked at. And I just thought, I wonder if I could write a script. I will play myself. And uh, I... I wrote this thing. Of course, most of it's funny. It's not, it's not gloomy. And <laughs> it's about a guy waiting by the telephone for news of his heart transplant. And of course, the phone keeps ringing. It's the wrong person. It's never the call he wants to hear. And meanwhile, he's visited by all kinds of people, old girlfriends, philosophers, scientists, et cetera, et cetera. And I got an actress to play all the other, the other parts, uh, including blokes. And so she and I got in my car with a screen and we started touring London and the home counties. And we offered to um, uh, sort of raise money for people with this. We said, if you give us the venue free, we, we will do the show for you. And you can you just charge them. And most nearly all of them, of course, were very generous and gave us a bit of the takings. So that was enormously interesting to do. And never done anything like that before. Uh, very interesting in terms of the reactions, et cetera, et cetera. So I started doing that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I, was, I, was, I worked a lot in, in alternative small theatres. And uh, Jeremy Kingston wrote an amazing play starring Lord Louis Mountbatten, Noel Coward and Agatha Christie. And we did it in a, at the Rosemary Branch in Islington absolutely sold out and the Mountbatten uh, countesses his relations came along to see it so it was quite you know it was kind of keep, keeping keeping things going it, uh, that, uh, it got to the point where people weren't regularly ringing me anymore to be in this or that and as you say rightly sitcom had changed and probably it's possible that what I did and what I looked like wouldn't fit into the kind of uh, uh, office uh, sitcoms that were on and so on and so on, you know. So, you know, you, you adapt and you 
use whatever you got and and and, and try and make something of it and and, and try and keep interested and, and um, you know uh, the, the 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 big danger I think is to just say I'm going to spend half the day in bed I think that's that's deadly yeah so yeah you've got to keep going you've got to definitely keep, keep going and it's and the point is it's what you enjoy isn't it you what it's what you enjoy and and that that's that's half of it isn't it part of it in terms of you know, keeping keeping your your life. I mean, my dad is what he's a bit younger than you, but he, he's an artist, and um, yeah, that character you played actually, <laughs> um, Dudley Rush, um, it always reminds me of my dad a little bit. But he keeps going, and he, he loves it. He loves his grandkids, but his main focus is on his art. He just, you know, he keeps fo- that keeps him keeps him keeps him busy. Um, did were you were just a slight aside here? Something were you ever in a sitcom called? This is the one that's really forgotten actually. Were you ever in a sitcom called Leave It to Charlie? I was. But I can't, I mean, I've still got the scripts, Ashley. And, you know, if we eventually do a, a joint PhD or whatever, uh, <laughs> I, I can dig it out. Just to remind you, it was, it was Peter Salis and David Roper were the main That's actors. right. That's right. And I, one of the sequences of that, I remember Peter Salis... Yeah, well, he yeah, he was it. He had to do uh, a kind of mock singing in the rain dance, uh-huh. right from the movie. So they set it up in the studio uh, with the the sidewalk and everything, so that he could. Uh, I don't know if you remember. Is it Gene Kelly? Yes, I think it is. In that, uh, who hops on and off the the the, pay, the, the sidewalk, you know, uh, it, during the dance, and of course there is. They had to have live water, rain. So, you know, they tried it and they tried it and everybody looked at each other, came the recording, fingers crossed, piece of salads come down. Magic. Straight through, everything worked. (laughs) No retakes. So it was a little miracle. It was another little miracle. One remembers the times when it really worked as opposed to the times when you had to keep going back. So well, I remember that. And Peter Salis was he was a lovely guy. He was uh, very funny. Of course, he was quite a writer as well. Yeah, he was he was fantastic. But what was what was interesting about that is Leave It to Charlie, if I remember rightly, um, was a sitcom that only went out in the afternoons. So we actually had sitcom afternoon sitcoms that were literally just sitcoms that went out in the daytime back in the back in the day. So, Robert, how, how can people get hold of the book? I think it's published on Facebook, on Twitter. There are quite a lot of locations. Do you know a site called Entertainment Focus? Yes. It, it's on there. And we've uh, created a new website. The book will be available on that. But meanwhile, you can more or less get it anywhere. I'd be very, very grateful if you could publish the link I'm going to send you as widely as you possibly can to every human being you know. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, the listeners listeners to Distinct Nostalgia, I'm sure, will be very interested and we will point them that way. But as you carry on with your new website and all the rest of it, keep us updated because we're, we're putting out interviews and reunions all the time. Um, the final thing to ask you then, looking back at your wonderful career... What have you enjoyed most? Is it the is it going way way back to the you know the writing you did with say, you know for Ned Sherin and that was the week that was or was it those comedies or was it the you know the days of doing some of the, the really highbrow stuff? What what sort of which period? If you were able to go back to a period in your life, when would it be? 
the answer is, as you expected and suspected, that it's really a matter of several peaks, because having been interested in a, in a, in a wide range of things, writing, directing, acting, etc., um, there are moments which just stand out. I think it works like that. So, for instance, I was very, 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 very pleased that Ned Sherin really liked the Consumer's Guide to Religions as much as he did. And it was I loved the response of the world because there were questions in the House of Commons. There was a threat from a clergyman from his pulpit about how scandalous that the BBC should be putting out such a disgraceful sketch. I absolutely loved every minute of that. And uh, of all the highlights, that's probably the greatest highlight because uh, the topic was, a, you know, I, it was heartfelt to me because of what I feel about some of the things that religions have done to us all. And so it was an enormous pleasure, one, to have it accepted by Ned Sheridan and to get that response. It, that was heaven. And uh, other things are get close. You know, I once came on stage at the Mermaid Theatre. I just had very few lines. I, I had this one line. I came on say, to uh, my boss. Uh, we were the, the villains in, the, in this comedy. And I came on and said, I come to bring bad news with a huge smile on my face. And that was the biggest stage laugh I've ever had. And just in the same way, the biggest sitcom laugh I've ever had was in the court case scene in Keep It in the Family. I think it's called All Through the Night when I fall asleep as a juror, a, a member of the jury and the lady next door to me passes me a, um, a piece of paper on which there appears to be an interesting offer and that got, when I reacted to that, that got the greatest laugh it compared with my mermaid laugh. It's the biggest laugh I've ever had. So there are the moments like that which are a pleasure to look back on. But uh, there wasn't just one moment. <laughs> of course. I know, I, I know that. I know that. And uh, But yeah, I mean, you've had a, a fabulous career. It's lovely, really nice to talk to you. Um, you're one of my... Uh, this sounds a bit clory, really, to say this, but you're one of my heroes in terms of comedy because there are lots of people who, you know, who are... What's the word? A sort of... A, uh, uh, household names in a way, but people see them and they think, "Oh, I'm not sure. Where did he? I saw him in such and such." And he, but they're not necessarily always known for one thing because they're they're everywhere. So it's a bit like um, I've forgotten her name now. She was in um, Abigail's Party, and she's been in all sorts of sitcoms. Janine Divesky, Divesky. Oh yeah, and, and she's another one who's prolific. You're, what I would say is you're prolific. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And and that and because you've been every you've, you've been everywhere and turned up everywhere, you know. So um, and and I think the the audiences like to see you turning up. You know, it's like oh, it's it's Robert Gillespie again. You know, so that's brilliant. So yeah, it's been it's been really really nice to talk to you. Good luck with the book. Hope it hope it goes well. No, thank you very much, Ashley. Robert Gillespie, one of the UK's most prolific comedy actors. And keep listening for a lot more comedy gems from Distinct Nostalgia as our Comedy Writing Legends series resumes in coming weeks and months, including the story of Porridge, The Likely Lads and now Feeder's Aim Pet with Dick Clements and Ian Lafrenet. Uh, our thing resonated. It was, it was as simple as that. It, and I think 
it's set sure. a tone for us about it's about people working against the odds, which seemed to define the rest of our career for the next forty years. So it was. A, so it was it, the inspiration in a way was those sort of kitchen sink dramas, was it? Absolutely, kitchen sink drama. Or there was movies. You know, Saturday night, Sunday morning, long distance runner. The series was obviously cast with actors, not comedians. You know, most of the sitcoms in those days tended to be with comedians. Then the other decision was where do we set it? Well, Ian's from the northeast. I'm from Essex, so undoubtedly he was closer to the grainy. Uh, movies we're talking about. All to come soon on Distinct Nostalgia. Bye for now. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast.